This message first aired on the radio on May 20, 2004. As we go through the book of Galatians, we are looking here in the third chapter at the relationship of the law to the promise. We're looking at the relationship of the law to justification, and we see that it has no direct relationship to justification. We see that God has brought salvation by grace through faith, according to his promise that that salvation would not be on the basis of works and law, but that salvation would come on the basis of God promising and man believing, so that he establishes the principle of faith. And we go through these arguments in the book of Galatians because the Galatian churches had moved away from the Lord himself. And in so doing, they moved away from the principle of grace through faith, which God has established for all men to bring salvation, so that no one can boast in his presence. We learn all of that in the epistle to the Romans, but here in the epistle to the Galatian churches, we find these churches in need of correction back to the proper doctrine which they had when they first believed, and that is that salvation comes by the grace of God through faith alone. And we've been looking through these arguments that the apostle gives. He gives very strong arguments. Last time we took up Galatians 3, uh, the 6th verse, through about the 15th or 16th verse. We're going to recover a little bit of that by way of summary and by way of progress. And so today we'll begin in the 15th verse and we'll categorize and summarize a little bit of what we've said before and then we'll complete uh, the section of verses 15 through 18 uh, so that we can have a rounded view of the strong arguments of the Apostle Paul. Though his words be brief, his arguments are strong, they carry some detail, and those details substantially fleshed out in the epistle to the Romans, which though preceding the epistle of the Galatians in the canon of Scripture, we believe followed it in terms of the time of its writing. Verses 15 through 18, Galatians the third chapter, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. And when we find this phrase, after the manner of men, now the apostle is saying, look, this is the reasoning of the earth. I want to argue this thing from the point of view of men here on the earth and the way that men handle things, that though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or add thereto. And there we talked about last will and testaments. God confirms his promise. God confirmed his promise to Abram. And now he says, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Verse 16, and he said, not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So we have to hold out now and remember that the promise to Abraham was to Abraham and to his seed, meaning just one. And so we look for the fulfillment in that way. That's a bit of a parenthetical statement, which we'll come back to in a moment. Now verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So here now is, according to the reasoning of men, a promise made that is confirmed as a covenant or as a testament in Christ, something later cannot revoke. So you can't add to, to or take away from the last will and testament of the deceased, for example, you can't take away from or add to a covenant that is made once it is confirmed or established. Now, we may say, well, what was this covenant and how was it established? How was it confirmed? Well, the covenant was to Abraham and to his seed. That was given in Genesis, the 15th chapter, where the Lord said, Blessing, I will bless thee, 
And uh, the Lord promised Abraham, he said, look up into the heavens and see the stars if you're able to count them. And Abraham looked up and God said to him, so shall your seed be. And Abraham looked up and he believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now after that time, after Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness, as a just man, uh, Abraham went about awaiting the fulfillment of the promise. And in the course of time, in Genesis the 22nd chapter, Abraham was called upon by the Lord to take his son, his only son Isaac, who is finally the seed that was promised, through him was going to come the Savior, through him was going to come the seed that was promised, and we'll look at that in a moment. And God told him, take your only begotten son Isaac, take him up to the altar on Mount Moriah, and put him on an altar and slay him there. And so Abraham went about in faith. He took Isaac, his only son, when Isaac was about 33 years old. He took him up to the mountain, and he told Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb. And there he would have slain Isaac, except that God stopped him through the agency of an angel and provided a ram that was caught in the thicket, and God provided the sacrifice himself, and provided for himself his own sacrifice, and spared Isaac. Nevertheless, that was the great faith, as Abraham was justified by works when he obeyed. That was Abraham's second justification. We know this. But at that same time, God swore to Abraham the same promise. And so he confirmed his promise by an oath. He confirmed his promise by an oath. And so it was finally and consummately at that time established, which it could not change. God could not find anyone else greater than himself to swear by. So he swore by himself and he gave an oath to Abraham that surely the promise to his seed would be fulfilled. And so now that it's established, and it was certainly established and confirmed by Genesis chapter 22, with that establishment, this promise cannot be altered. Certainly not by something that comes 430 years later, which was the law. And so the argument here is that just in terms of time, if you look at the scriptures, it isn't step up to Moses. It is a fact that the promise that was given to Abraham and that was confirmed to Abraham by an oath of God could not possibly be revoked by anything that happened later including including the law. Now that was verse 17. Now verse 18, and we didn't really take this up very much, so we'll take it up now. But it says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is not of promise, but God gave to Abraham by promise. Now it's important that the promise be established. It's important that the promise be established. And in Judaistic thinking, among the Jews, this cannot be misunderstood. This cannot be taken out of context. The promise to Abraham is certainly the great thing that Israel waits for. And we can see that in the preaching of Stephen. If we'll go back to Acts, the seventh chapter, we look at the preaching of Stephen. We can see that Stephen says this, and we look at Acts 7 verse, well, let's start with verse 9, and the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now that was the case where the children of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, in envy moved against Joseph. 
and sold him, and that's how God moved Israel to Egypt. Now, verse 11, there came a darth, or a famine, over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. And of course, this prefigures the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first visit, and then with the second time when he's made known to his brethren. Of course, there'll be great national repentance of Israel. We just pick that up because it's there. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died he and our fathers and were carried over into Sichem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sichem. But now verse 17 of Acts chapter 7. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, one of a different kind, who knew not Joseph. Now here we see that Stephen makes a point when the time of the promise drew nigh. Now this was the 400 years of slavery that and oppression that God told Abraham the children of Israel would suffer in Egypt. Well, they were in there longer, but they weren't repressed any longer than that. So now when the 400 years came, and it would be time that the promise might be fulfilled, that would be their expectation. It's time for the promise to be fulfilled. When the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, notice here the swearing and the oath to Abraham is named by Stephen. That is to say, the promise was given, and it was confirmed, or it was established. Nothing can disannul that, nothing can change that, and when that time arose, that was the time when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt. So Stephen puts the focus there in his preaching in Acts 7, which of course had a lifetime impact on the Apostle Paul. Stephen puts his preaching, puts the emphasis on the promise on the promise becoming fulfilled. Now, of course, the promise wasn't fulfilled, but instead, something was added. What was added? The law was added. But the promise does not come by the law, or the inheritance does not come by the law. And the expectation of the children of Israel was not for the law, but it was for the promise. And when the law came, it came for a whole different reason. So the inheritance, that is to say, that which was promised to Abraham, that which they've been waiting for, doesn't come by the law. If it comes by the law, it's no more of promise, because, of course, Abraham, long dead, the promise to Abraham had nothing to do with the law. And by the way, the promise to Abraham, no nation of Israel. So it says, if the inheritance be of the law, verse 18, it's no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham, not by law, but by promise. And Abraham received, so God gave it by promise, and Abraham received it on the basis of faith. Now that's a very different thing. God gave by promise, finding none other to swear by. He swore by himself. Now there's a difference in the giver, and there's a difference in the disposition of the recipient. God gave it by promise, acting on his own self. Abraham received it on the basis not of works by law, but of grace through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, that leads us now to some serious thinking. 
we now have to say, well, okay, so we realize that the law does not bring justification. We realize that the law and the works of the law do not bring about the promise that was promised to Abraham. What does the law bring to us? What is the purpose of the law? It's a good question. We see what it doesn't do. We see that God established things on the basis of promise to Abraham. Is there any need for the law? Well, the promise came to Abraham and to his seed. Not seeds as of many, but seed as of one. And so there is in the promise, there is the expectation of the one who is the seed. The expectation of the one. Verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3. Wherefore then serves the law? What is the purpose of the law? It's a good question. We should think about this. What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sins. Because of man's behavior of sin. The law was added until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So here's here's a fact. The law was added to give time. To give time to mankind until the seed should come. God has a perfect schedule. We must behold it. We must study it and understand it to see how it's perfect. But the law was given until the seed should come. And so we see that the law is temporary. That's the first thing we see. It was added because of transgression. So it was added to give time because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Well, why would man need time? Why would man need to be restrained to gain time? Well, we can learn that very easily just by studying the scriptures. When men, when men were unrestrained, when men were left to the devices of their own conscience, when men were allowed to be limited by the limits of their own conscience, what did they do? They created the conditions that required the flood. Now, God promised unconditionally he'd never flood the whole world again. In order for him to keep that promise, God has to make sure that the conditions that required the flood of the deluge of the entire world, that those conditions never happen again. Well, you remember those conditions out of Genesis chapter 6? The whole world was of one language, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they came into them, and the daughters of men bore unto them, and the satanic agencies, the angelic agencies under Satan, entered into the human race, destroying the genealogy of all but Noah and his sons. And they got a foothold in the race so deeply and so and with such an impact that every thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. Now that happened in a fairly short period of time. That happened in 1656 years after Adam. So man, being desperately wicked, having a heart that is deceitful above all else, uh, having a tendency towards evil, in fact, headlong hurtling towards evil. Why was the law given? It was given because man's a sinner, and God wanted time to bring the Son of God into the world at the exact right time, 4,000 years after Adam. And so with 1,500 years to go, and with men already being so evil that the iniquity of the Amorite, during the time of Abraham had become full and God was going to have to raise up a human army to 
destroy those people and everything about them and destroy those uh, ten Canaanite civilizations, man having been at such an evil state, uh, God needed time. And what was he going to do to give himself time? Well, he was going to put the law in place. He's going to put the law in place. It was going to restrain the pace at which men did evil until the seed should come. That's why it was added. It wasn't added to fulfill the promise. It wasn't added to justify man. It was added, according to verse 19 of Galatians 3, it was added because of sin, so that the seed could come to whom the promise was made. And that seed is our Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, and he came at just the right time to save the ungodly. We'll be back in just a minute with more Bible study out of the book of Galatians, the third chapter. We hope to finish the chapter today. You're listening to BibleStudy.net, and I'm John Malone. Well, it's not enough just to know why the law came for the Apostle Paul. He wants to be complete here in his arguments in Galatians. It's also important how the law came. So not only do we see a different purpose for the law, why serveth the law? Well, it came because of transgressions until the seed should come. That is to say, the law served the purpose of preserving uh, mankind and also the race of Israel until the seed would come. And then we're going to look also at how the law came. The law came a little bit differently. In fact, the law came a lot differently than the promise. And we're going to see that it has different terms and so forth. And thank God that the terms of the promise to Abraham are an entirely different legal ground than the terms of the law. Before we look at that, let's remember how important it is about the seed that should come. Because uh, it's an extremely important argument that the promise came to Abraham and to his seed. And to his seed. Now this comes as a statement following the very first prophecy in Scripture concerning the Savior. And this now had to do with the fall of man. And the Lord found man in his fall. Man had sinned, and their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they were ashamed, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And this is because they had sinned. Now we're reading out of Genesis chapter 3, the 8th verse. And they heard the voice of the Lord, or the word of the Lord. Here is the voice of the Lord, the word of God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That is a, a statement of the word of God, who is the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. There we see their shame. There we see man's tendency is to hide from the Lord Jesus Christ, to hide from the word of God. And therefore, because... It is the tendency of man to hide from the Word of God. It is God's plan and God's program to save out from men and women those who will carry the Word of God and bring the Word of God to those who are hiding. So today, if you're in the sound of my voice, if you're hiding from God, if you're guilty, then God has given us this means in this age to reach you with the Word of God and to tell you that though you are ashamed of yourself, and though you have tried to cover up your sin all your life, and though you think you can hide from God, God seeks you out by his word. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where are you? Of course, God knew where Adam was, but here is a statement that Adam might 
now speak. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, that is the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Now this has the ring of, O you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, doesn't it? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. The serpent tricked me. The serpent deceived me. That's what she said, and it's true. And I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because, and this of course is the shining one, he's not now one that crawls on the ground, he's going to become an animal that crawls on the ground, right after this statement, The Lord God said unto the serpent, or the Nechash, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And of course, this is an unusual statement. Women don't have seed. This is the promise of the seed. This is the promise of the seed. And with Abraham, we have the promise to the seed. So here we see the correspondence of Genesis 3.15 with Genesis 15.6. First, God promises the seed. Then God makes a promise to the seed. Now, you say, well, if he first makes the seed, and he says, I'll put enmity between thee and, and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And, of course, that's in one activity, the head crushed, the heel crushed, the Lord Jesus Christ dying for sins, and as he is bruised for our iniquities, but destroying Satan, making an open show triumphing over him in his cross that we find out of the epistle to the Colossians so now this amazing plan of God to promise the seed and then to make a promise to the seed God makes sure that he keeps things on trustworthy ground he keeps it on his own word and he keeps the promise within himself and that's very important for us to understand because now it stands on the election of God and not the cooperation of man not the cooperation of man the covenant of the law is inferior because it invokes the performance of man the covenant to Abraham is superior because it does not invoke man's participation whatsoever. Another way to put it is this. The law is conditional and the promise to Abraham and to his seed is unconditional. Now if we look here at the 20th verse back in Galatians chapter 3, this is what this argument is entirely about. Verse 20 says, uh, well let's look at verse 19 in the middle of verse 19. It, that is to say, the law, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. This is something not very well known. When God gave the law to Moses, he gave it by the disposition of angels. This was taught through in rabbinic tradition, but we also have it written in the Word of God. Again, we turn to Stephen's great preaching in Acts the seventh chapter, something that made an indelible mark in the life of the Apostle Paul. But uh, 
Here Stephen's talking to the Jews who are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews rejected God in three ways. First, they rejected him by their idolatry, which resulted in their captivity. Then they rejected the Son of God when he came to them, which resulted in their own cursing of their own selves. And finally, they rejected taking the gospel out to the Gentiles. And so this threefold rejection of God and God's plan resulted in the setting aside of the nation of Israel. This now Stephen, criticizing them, said, You stiff-necked, this is Acts 7, 51. This is right before they stone him to death. Acts 7, 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. And of course, he is a true Jew who is one inwardly, whose circumcision is of the heart. That's what we read in the book of Romans. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. See, let him that have ears to hear, not just ears, but ears to hear, let him hear. You do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and have not kept it. Well, here you see the law was given to them by the disposition of angels. Here, here we see it also in Galatians 19. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. We can also look at what Moses had to say about that in the book of Deuteronomy, the 33rd chapter, when Moses, repeating the law, says, verse 1, Deuteronomy 33, And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai, rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of his holy ones. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. And of course, this prophesied by Enoch, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones. This is what happened at Mount Sinai, the disposition of angels, the Lord coming with thousands of his angels. And it says it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now this is how the law came. The law came through the disposition of angels. But the promise did not. The promise came directly to Abraham from God. The law came to the children of Israel through the disposition of angels by the hand of Moses, a mediator. And so here now, a mediator, as soon as we introduce the idea of a mediator, what do we know? Well, we know that a mediator has to do with two parties. It doesn't have to do with one party. It has to do with two parties. And that is what verse 20 of Galatians chapter 3 teaches. A mediator is not of one, but God is one. So now here is the distinction between the way the law came and, and the way the law is, we might say, after the manner of man legally, speaking in the manner of men, the law is between two parties. And that's why there's a mediator, that he may put his hand on both. The children of Israel said, Moses, we can't listen to this thing, so you go talk to God, you tell us what he has to say. So we introduce a mediator, and a mediator is like a referee or an umpire. He's somebody who can place his hand, as Job said, on both shoulders of the parties. Uh, but God does not need a mediator with himself. God is one. And with the promise, it was just God. God promised to Abraham and to his seed. And so uh, here now it says, a mediator is not of one, but God is one. So 
That's also now the superiority of the promise and the distinction of the promise is that it did not come conditionally. It came unconditionally. It didn't come as an agreement between two parties. It came as God acting out of his own goodness and Abraham believing that God would do that. So on God's part is everything. On Abraham's part is nothing. This is the way the promise came to Abraham and to his seed. Now because God brought the promise to Abraham's seed, uh, we don't have to worry about it being mishandled by men. We don't need to be. We don't need a mediator between us. Also, he secured it to his seed, and therefore the promise comes to us if we are in his seed, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, then the promise of Abraham comes to you. Now, verse 21 is the law. Then, now this is the next question uh, about the law. So we say, well, what was the purpose of the law? And we see that the purpose of the law was to extend time out and to bring the seed into place so that there would be someone to whom the promise could be given to the seed, not as of many, but of one, so that there would be that seed to whom the promise could be given. And uh, we also now see its inferiority insofar as it's conditional, and the promise is not, insofar as the uh, law requires two parties and a mediator, but the promise does not. Now we, now we say, well, okay, so now we know what the law is. Is the law against the promises of God? And now, God forbid, God will not initiate and inaugurate something to defeat himself. He, God cannot contradict himself. Uh, God cannot deny himself. And so the law is not against the promise. The law is just not the way that the promise comes. Now, here we see what law actually what the law actually is. He says the law against the promises of God. The statement in verse 21, God forbid, means don't even think about such a crazy thing as that. Because if a law, here's the argument, if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Now here is the statement if a law could give life, if, there, if there's a law that could have been given, that could give life, then righteousness should have come by the law. But the fact is, the law could not give life. It was unable to impart life. Nothing wrong with the law itself. The law is good. The law is holy. And by the way, the law itself was alive. Again, we turn to Acts chapter 7, and we see, well, what did Stephen say about the law? Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, right where we were reading, he said that the law was given by angels, and by the way, the law is called the living oracles, or the lively oracles. This was in Acts 7. We had looked at verse 53. Now we turn back and we look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. And we'll see what Stephen says about the law there. In talking about Moses, he said, This Moses whom they refused, the children of Israel refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? And this, of course, is when Moses slew the Egyptian, thinking they would understand that he's the deliverer. The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. 
Verse 37, Acts 7, This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear. This is he that was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and our fathers who received the living oracles to give unto us. And so here in Acts 7, 38, you see that Stephen says, The oracles of God, or the utterances of God, the word of God written in the law, it was alive. The problem isn't the law, the problem's us. We need something that will make us alive because we're dead in trespasses and sins, and that's not something the law can do. It's alive, we're not, it can't give life. What can? Well, we'll see that that is the basis for faith in Christ. And we'll be right back with this. I'm John Malone. You're listening to BibleStudy.net. So we see that the law is not against the promises of God. In fact, the law contains the Word of God, and the law contains the reasonings of God, and the law contains an operation of God. But that operation is not to impart life. The operation of the law is what Galatians 3.22 teaches us it is. It is what Romans chapters 1 through 3 teaches it is, which is a detailed description of Galatians 3.22 and uh, further. But here it says in verse 22, The scripture has concluded all under sin. In fact, the purpose of the law was to conclude all under sin. The law written on the heart of the Gentile concludes him under sin. The law that was given by the dispositions of angels through the hand of a mediator concluded Israel under sin. As Israel, the agent of God to bring about righteousness and holiness in the earth, found themselves also lacking in life. So the scripture concludes all under sin. That is the purpose of the word of God through the law. The scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So here the apostle argues, look, it is God's purpose and it is God's plan and its program to give the promise to those who believe. In order to be fair, to give eternal life and to give the promise to those who believe, God has to conclude all under sin, so that it is all on the basis of grace through faith. Otherwise, somebody could boast and say, well, I earned my life, but others had theirs given to them. Not at all. All are concluded under sin through the agency of the law, whether written on your heart or written in stone and given by the hands of a mediator. It is that the scripture has concluded all under sin. Verse 23, Before faith came, we were concluded under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And now we see, by the way, the work of the law in connection with the promise. Remember that the, the argument here is, is the law against the promise? And the answer is no. Law, properly used, is not against grace. Law properly used is not against grace through faith. Law properly used is in favor of grace through faith. It is an instrumentality whereby we realize that by grace through faith is the only way that God can bring to us his promise. He concludes us and shuts us up under law. We are concluded under the law, as it said. God gives us a conclusion that we can arrive at. 
a conclusion that we arrive at, and that is we conclude that we're all sinners, and we conclude that we have no uh, way of performing to please God and to remedy our condition. And so when the law is operating, we see that it is against us. We see that it is uh, defining us as failures. We see that it is bringing us to the conclusion that we are in need. That conclusion thereby reached allows faith to be revealed as the only mechanism by which we must be saved. And that is the argument of Galatians 3.22 and 23. So then what is the law now? Here you see its strange work of conviction. It's shutting us up as sinners. It's shutting us out as to faith. That's what it does. It shuts us up as sinners. It shuts us out as to faith. That There's nothing to believe in the law that will save you. It says, cursed is everyone who doesn't do all the things that are in it. Well, if I believe that, it certainly shuts me out. It, it, I'm the one who sins. I'm the one who's cursed. I don't keep all these things. I am therefore concluded under sin and shut out concerning faith. But nevertheless, what God does is he says, but I, you see, that's just your looking at the law. Here is the promise. Here is the one who fulfilled the law. Here is the one who became the curse for you. Here is the way of salvation. Here is your escape. Some people say, well, Christianity, faith in Christ, that's just for losers. Absolutely. It's just for losers like me and losers like you. Sinners uh, concluded under sin and concluded outside of the faith. Now, once you find yourself in that condition, you can see that you're in desperate need. Verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. I don't like this, this translation of this word schoolmaster. Did a little study on it. This doesn't have to do with being a teacher. The law doesn't really teach us. The law is not the schoolmaster in the sense that it's not the principal, it's not the teacher. The schoolmaster here, the word translated schoolmaster, pedagogos, it's the child guardian. This is more like the crossing guard. What we would have in our schools, this would be more like the crossing guard or a bus driver. This is the fella who looks after you and gets you to school. He gets you there. He gets you to the place of learning. He guards you until you come to the place of learning. That's what the law did. The law was our guardian, and of course the schoolmaster here, or the guardian, he was a household servant that had custody of the children to, his job was, in part, to get them to their schooling. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, just as this guardian was one to take them to school where they would learn the law is the guardian keeping Israel safe across the period of 1,500 years, bringing them to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to receive his instruction and to receive him. Now, they failed to do so, but the law didn't fail. They failed. The law brought Israel as a nation to the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. After it did that, it served its function. It had no more function. And so the law of Moses 
has no function today, and it had no function beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the temple was destroyed. This is why at the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, the temple was rent in half. It has no more function. It is no longer the Mosaic economy ordained by God. It is the Jews' religion. Its purpose has been properly and rightly fulfilled, and it has no more place. It did its job. It brought the nation of Israel safely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they rejected him, and he set them aside, but that now turns from that Mosaic economy and that dispensation of law to today's dispensation of the church, which is his body. And this is just as temporary a dispensation as that one was. They're both temporary. They're both not permanent dispensations. That dispensation the purpose of which was to bring Israel as a nation safely across the human genealogical abyss to to bring about the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. This dispensation to take out of Jews the remnant according to grace and to take out of the Gentiles a people unto his name and to break down the middle wall of partition between those two and to to have the church which is his body taken out from the world existing in the world in order to evangelize the world and to demonstrate to the world the great grace and love of God it is not God's purpose in this dispensation nor will he achieve the salvation of the whole world he is busy taking a people out of the Gentiles for his name and my Jewish friend first he is calling upon you to understand yourself to be part of the remnant or the elect according to grace he wants to save you the gospel of Jesus Christ is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile and this law was the guardian it was not intended to make you live it could not impart life I'm alive I cannot impart life doesn't mean there's something wrong with me because I can't impart life I was never intended to be able to impart life the there's nothing wrong with the law itself or the living lively oracles as Stephen called them in Acts chapter 7 but they are unable to impart life and that's not the problem of the law that is the problem of you the Lord Jesus Christ is able to impart life so now that was the purpose of the law verse 25 after faith it is come after the faith is come and of course the seed comes he fulfills the scripture now faith in the seed is come and we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ he dies for our sins we can believe in his finished work Verse 25, after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. In other words, once the guardian gets you to school, and you now are listening to the teacher and so forth, you're under a whole different administration, and that servant that got you there has completed his job. He doesn't hang around in the school. He doesn't sit around and teach you your reading, writing, and arithmetic. He goes back to his household chores he's done for the day and that friends is the law it is done for this day this day of grace the law is done it served its purpose we can say you did a good job law see ya but uh, as for me I am now introduced to faith and now that faith has come no longer under a schoolmaster 
No more under that. Verse 26 through 29 now, uh, the last four verses in the third chapter of Galatians, we read it this way, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now let me just say that what he's saying is all your distinctions are being lost in Christ. You have to understand the unity of Christ. Here it says, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And here you see Christ is put first before Jesus. Important for us to note that he's talking now of the unification of all believers in Christ. And here we see the mystical, what is called the mystical body of Christ, or the body of Christ spiritually discerned, which is the believer's who are members of one body. And he says, You are all the children of God by faith, not by law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, the notion here is that you've gone into Christ and Christ is around you, so that you're in Christ and He's around you, and you no longer have an identification as seeds as of many, but seed as of one. You see, this is the thought, because he doesn't say in verse 29, if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seeds. He says, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. This is the apostle's way in Galatians of saying that we are in Christ. This is not the full discussion of the church which is his body but it's dangerously close to that. And when we go to the next epistle, the epistle of the Ephesians, he will lay that all out. But here we see that he's pointing out, our baptism points out that we've died with Christ and we live with Christ. He he said this is not just a signification of an individual thing. This is not merely a signification of an individual belief, although it is individually performed. But now it is an understanding... Christian baptism is an understanding not only that we are dead to sin and individually alive to God, but also that we are members of a body of Christ because Christ is one. And we have no benefits individually visited upon us. We have all benefits, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places benefiting to us because we are in him and apart from him we can do nothing apart from him we have nothing and so we see that the distinctions which we carry about individually and we do carry these distinctions individually Jew or Greek bond or free male or female you are all one in Christ Jesus when it comes to benefit when it comes to blessing when it comes to standing we are all one Of course, we do have distinctions. That doesn't mean I get to go spend my brother's money. My brother's a wealthy man. That doesn't mean I can go spend his money. 
It says neither bond nor free. It doesn't mean that I have Jewish ancestors now. No, I'm not a Jew. I'm still a Gentile in the flesh. But here in Christ, those distinctions are gone. Male and female doesn't mean that we don't have different roles in society, in our families, so forth. It means in Christ, we don't have any different standing. We are one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, that is to say, if Christ owns you... You are then Abraham's seed. This is the wonder of incorporation in Christ. This is the great wonder of the one body, which the Galatians were going to lose because they got on the wrong principle. Heirs according to promise, not according to legal principle. What a wonderful tale this is. And what great strong arguments yet to come in Galatians 4. May God bless your meditation as you continue to read it. And I'm John Malone. You've been listening to BibleStudy.net.